Well, please turn with me to the book of Ephesians. We're going to start chapter 3 today. You've made it through the first two chapters. The title of our lesson, for those of you that are taking notes, and I hope that you all are, would be Positioning Paul in the Eternal Plan of God. Positioning Paul in the Eternal Plan of God. And you'll notice that this title hints at the theme of Ephesians. Whether you believe the theme of Ephesians is the eternal plan of God, or whether you would feel that it's better summarized as in him, our position in Christ, it kind of combines the two. And if you're wondering, that's weird to have two different themes um, actually, both are true. They're, both are a true and accurate summary of what's going on in Ephesians. It kind of depends on the perspective you take looking into it, right? So over and over, you get in him, with him, in Christ, because when you look at what Paul is writing to the church at Ephesus, they are um, facing opposition from without. There is some opposition from within. Uh, they are being persecuted. They are going through difficult times. And Paul is now in prison. And he is writing them saying, look, you are in Christ. And being on Christ's team means a lot. It should bring comfort and hope and peace and a, a, a resolve to serve him. And so the first three chapters are about in him our position in Christ. And the next three is in him our practice in Christ. Now in this, while he is uh, writing to them about their position and the privileges that come with being a child of God, he reveals to them God's eternal plan. And he discusses the eternal plan. And I believe that he does that so that Paul says, hey, look, guys, I know what's going to happen because God told me. And I can look back to the Old Testament and I can teach you that, but I also have new divine revelation from God being an apostle. And so I'm now going to include you and update you about God's eternal plan so that they go, whoa, it is awesome to be in Christ because I'm a part of and I know all about his eternal plan of God. I want us just to review chapter two briefly because we just finished it, all right? We just finished it. In chapter two, you have in verses one through 10, picturing God's work of salvation. So it, it's one of those uh, big subcategories of the book, picturing God's work of salvation. In verses two through, uh, sorry, uh, one through three, we have describing our deadness. In four through six, we have dissecting God's deliverance. In verses seven through 10, we have defining the relationship between faith and works. So we were dead, but God being gracious and merciful made us alive through grace or, or by grace through faith. And so we are now, verse 10, his workmanship created in Christ for good works. And then he transitions to the next big subcategory in verse 11, and that would be placing the Gentiles into God's eternal plan of salvation. 
placing the Gentiles into God's eternal plan of salvation. And when we say the word Gentile, all right, you know that there is the nation of Israel. You have Abraham and Abraham's descendants. And eventually Israel is going to be split into Israel and Judah. And so they're often referred to as either Israelites or as Jews. Both Jews, Israelites, right? God's chosen people in the Old Testament. Everyone else is a Gentile. You are outside of the Jewish culture. You are outside of the nation of Israel. The church at Ephesus would have both Jews and Gentiles. Ephesus is a pagan city in a pagan place. But Jews had been scattered about. And so they had synagogues there, which would be like their church. And so Paul's practice, he would go to the synagogues first and he would preach Christ to the Jews. And he would say, look at the Old Testament. Uh, look at the virgin birth. Look at where he was to be born. Look at all of these miracles. Jesus died and rose again. He is the Messiah that was promised in the Old Testament. And some of the Jews would go, and they would believe but many would hate him and they would try to run him out of town. But those Jews would form a core and then Paul would go to the Gentiles. He would go out into the city and he would preach the good news there. And some of those pagans who had been worshiping uh, Diana or Artemis, whatever you want to call her, that had been going to the temple there, they repent and they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So now you have a church that's Jews and it's Gentiles. They're both believers in Christ. And in chapter 2, verse 11 through 22, he is going to be placing the Gentiles into God's eternal plan of salvation. We need to know that the Gentiles have always been a part of God's plan. It wasn't like, oh man, the Jews rejected Jesus. What's plan B? Ah, the Gentiles. No, they've always been included. And you can see throughout the Old Testament that there are people that love God that are not Jews. Well, just think of the fact of Abraham came around what? Genesis 11, Genesis 12. Everyone before Abraham would be what? They would be a Gentile. They would not be part of it. So you think of all of those people, Enoch and so forth, they're not Israel, right? Then you have Abraham though. And then you also see other people like Mel Melchizedek was not a Jew, but he was a, a picture of Christ as both a, a priest and a king. All right, you get to the Exodus where Moses leads the people of Israel to the promised land. And while they're going in to conquer it, you have a Gentile convert. Do you know who I'm talking about? Rahab, right? Rahab, one of the first things. So the Israelites are supposed to go into the land and these people were wicked, gross people. And God said, you need to clear them out. And then you need to take over this land. And so they get to, some spies get to Jericho and Rahab goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. You're Israelites? I heard about you. I heard about what God did to Egypt. I don't want to be on this team. I want on your team. I want to believe in the one true God. And so the spies set it up so Rahab and her family were preserved. So you have, even as they're going to conquer everybody, you have this Gentile convert, all right? And Rahab is even in the descendants or the lineage of the promised Messiah when it comes down to it, all right? There's some really, really cool stuff. So throughout, 
you have converts that are not Jews that come to know the one true God. So it's not like God was like, man, the Jews rejected Jesus. I guess I'll go to the other people. All right, it was always a part of what was going on. But let's look what's happening here, okay? Because sometimes you think of, man, it would have been cool to, to be the tribe of Judah. I mean, they're God's chosen people, and are they more special than us? Like, what's going on here? Well, chapter 2, verse 11, says, Therefore, remember that you formerly, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you are at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. And they're like, thanks, Paul. Man, I feel really good about that. Verse 13, but now... In Christ Jesus, you formerly were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Woohoo, I like this better. For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. Now that is significant, okay? The Jews look down on the Gentiles. Oh, we're God's chosen people. We have the oracles of God, and you know, no, no, da, 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 so da, 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 all right? And so when they came together as a church, there's a little bit of that that's still lingering there. And the Gentile's kind of like kicking himself, man, if I was only... And, and Paul is saying, look, it doesn't matter. You had Jews and you had Gentiles and they didn't get along. They didn't mix. There was a, there was a wall there. But the wall actually wasn't between you. The wall was between both of you and God. And so God breaks down that wall and he brings you both to himself. And now you are simply one people. You are one people now. Now, keep in mind, God does have a future plan for ethnic Jews. All right, you read that in Romans. You read that in Revelation. But here we are. The two have been brought into one. Look at verse 15. How did he do it? By abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commands contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace. So you are in Christ. What does that mean? If I'm a Jew and I'm in Christ and you're a Gentile and you're in Christ, boom, we are both in Christ together. Verse 16, it might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far away. And he preached peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in, uh, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the spirit. Isn't that a beautiful picture? Two people groups, all right, this would be like, give me a random example, all right, I don't know why I thought of it, but let's say that you had Cowboy fans and you had Detroit Lion fans, all right, and it's game day and you'd think that they wouldn't mix, okay, but what do we have here? We had a Lion fan wearing a Lion shirt doing the opening prayer, and we, all because of the love of Christ. We can see past his lionness. Because of that, right? You had Jews and you had Gentiles who are now one people, one body, one church. All right? We do not have a lot of things in common. 
right? You, you don't live in the same city. You don't play the same sports. You don't play the same instrument. You might not like the same things, but you are together now in Christ, one body for the work. We, have, we are in Christ now, bearers of the eternal plan of God, bringing it to the world. So when we get to Ephesians 3, we have our next big subcategory, which is positioning Paul in the eternal plan of God. What does Paul have to do with all of this? How is he a part of this? Well, he stops at this part in the book and he explains his role. Chapter 3, verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of the Gentiles. If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before in brief. Now, Paul is expounding upon and he is um, reiterating and revealing the eternal plan of God. But let it not be lost on you. How many times does he say I? How many times does he say me? He refers to himself just in those three verses, okay? So it can't be lost on us that Paul is emphasizing his role, his life, his ministry in the eternal plan of God. Paul is in Christ, and what is he doing? He's taking what God is teaching him, and he has taught it to the church, and he is continuing to teach it to the church. Verse 4. By referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, and it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. And what is Paul? He is one of the holy apostles. He is one of the holy apostles. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me according to the working of his power. And we'll stop there. But this passage actually continues on through, uh, it continues on to verse 11. And we'll look at it again on Sunday. I just have two main outline points and you're like, what? we didn't get to the outline points. No, I was reviewing. Two main outline points. The first one would be a question. Who is Paul? Who are you? No, it's not um, Alice in Wonderland. Who is Paul? And you're like, well, we already covered this, man. Remember the beginning of the book? Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are at Ephesus. We, we, we got that part. Well, here he is going to reiterate who he is and what he's doing and why he's doing it. And he gives some different descriptions than he did in chapter one. And these descriptions are incredibly important to the theme that's being communicated at this time. For this reason, I, Paul. All right, and then we are going to see three descriptions of Paul. A, he is a prisoner of Christ. He is a prisoner of Christ. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of 
Christ Jesus. Well, we, we understand Christ Jesus, right? We know that Jesus was his name. Christ is his title, the anointed one, the Messiah. When it comes to this word prisoner, uh, sometimes we can, can, we can automatically um, commu- think of the slave. Remember, doulos is slave. I'm a slave of Christ. This actually is a different word, and it means literally a prisoner, okay? Uh, we see it again in 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Now, Paul is actually a prisoner of Rome. But he didn't view himself as a prisoner of Rome because he knew something. He knew that he was in prison because of Jesus. And he didn't go, man, Jesus, I'm in prison because of you. He said, yes, I'm in prison because of you. You see, when Paul got arrested, he didn't mope and whine. You know what he did? He continued to preach the gospel. And so even the dudes that were like monitoring him are like, oh, this guy's preaching the gospel again to me. He used every opportunity. And he, he, he read the word and he prayed and he memorized and he wrote letters of encouragement like Ephesians and all of that stuff. But he is a prisoner of Christ. He, he goes on in 2 Timothy He says, but join with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God. Remember, Timothy was the pastor at Ephesus, and he was a young man, and he was struggling in his ministry, and he was being discouraged. And Paul said, look, I'm a prisoner of Jesus, not of Rome, of Jesus. Jesus wants me here, all right? And we know in 2 Timothy that Paul's about to be killed. This is his second imprisonment in 2 Timothy. And even though he knows he's about to be killed, he's writing Timothy saying, look, suffer with me in suffering for the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. Paul's perspective was, I'm in prison because of Jesus and for Jesus, and I'm going to maximize this opportunity. I'm going to maximize this opportunity. Now, why was he in prison? Well, he, he says, for the sake of you Gentiles. For the benefit of you Gentiles. Let's go to Acts 20. And let's look at when he gets arrested. And I I got a a lot of reading here. I'll try to do it quickly, but I want you to follow along. All right, while you're turning there, uh, there's a resource called Read Through the Bible. And it summarizes just a little bit of Paul's ministry, okay? They write, Paul took Silas on his second missionary journey. And you can read about his second uh, missionary journey in Acts 15 through 18, all right? The second missionary journey concentrated on Macedonia and Greece. Paul's third missionary journey, again, originated in Antioch, but it focused on Asia with Ephesus as his headquarters. And you see that in Acts 18 through 21. Paul went to Jerusalem one last time with a collection for the poor, but he was soon accused of violating the temple and a riot broke out. So let's go to Acts 20, all right? Verse 17. Let me, oh, you flip there. I forgot to flip there. Look at verse 17. Here we are, part of his third missionary journey. 
says, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And we already went through this, so I'm not going to read all of this, okay? The elders of the church at Ephesus, this is before he gets arrested. Skip down to verse 22. He says, and now behold, bound by the Spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So he calls these elders together of Ephesus, who he loves. He is going to warn them about certain things, but he says, look, I'm heading to Jerusalem. I don't know what's going to happen, except he knew that he was going to be arrested. If I told you, all right, if you go to Keller today, nothing against Keller, you will be arrested. You're not going to go there. You're going to go the other direction. Okay, you're going to go wherever you want. Paul knew Jerusalem, he would be arrested. And he said, sign me up, I'm in. And that reminds us of who? Jesus, right? Jesus knew that if he went to Jerusalem, that he was going to be arrested and he was going to be crucified. And even though the disciples were like, what, what, why, why would you do that? It was part of God's eternal plan because Jesus knew that was the only way to provide salvation to us. Skip down to verse 28. He tells the elders of Ephesus, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. From among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert. So that's where they're now. Paul went to Jerusalem. He gets arrested, which we're going to see in a moment. He writes the book of Ephesians, and he sends the letter to them. And right then, when they're reading it, people have risen within the church, and people have attacked the church from without. And now these elders that are supposed to be vigilant and on the alert are receiving this encouraging letter from Paul, reminding them of their position in Christ and their place in the eternal plan of God. Skip down to verse 36. When Paul had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And isn't this beautiful? Isn't this sweet? And they began to weep aloud and embrace Paul and repeatedly kissed him, grieving especially over the word which he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they were accompanying him to the ship. They loved Paul. They loved him. Now, we need to keep in mind, okay, this imprisonment does not lead in Paul, does not end in Paul's death. This imprisonment, all right, continues on through the rest of the book of Acts. But we know that he gets out and he goes and he shares the gospel, but then he gets arrested again. And that's when he is eventually killed and he writes 2 Timothy and all that fun stuff, okay? Look at, let's look at the actual arrest. The actual arrest, chapter 21, skip down to verse 8. So we know he, he goes to Jerusalem. It says 21 verse 8. On the next day we left and came to Caesarea, entering the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and we stayed with him. This man had four virgin daughters who were prophetesses as they were staying there for some days. 
a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and he bound his own feet and hands. And you're like, what are you doing, man? Hey, can I borrow your belt for a second? And he just starts tying himself up. And it's like, okay. It says, this is what the Holy Spirit says. In this way, the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt. Which is really funny because we all know he just took Paul's belt. He could have just said, Paul, the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Well, who are the Gentiles? The Romans, right? They're going to arrest you, Paul, and hand you over to the Romans. When he had heard this, we as well as the local residents began begging him not to go up to Jerusalem. Do you think it's going to stop Paul? Nope. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart. For I am already not only, for I am ready not only to be bound, but even to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we fell silent, remarking, the will of the Lord be done. Now this is all, it's, what an insight. They loved Paul. They heard this news and they're going, no, no, Paul, we love you, don't go. And then Paul says, this is the eternal plan of God. This is God's will. And they go, we're in. Breaks our heart, but we love you. We're going to encourage you now. We're going to build you up because this is not, this is not easy. It's not easy. I want you to skip down to verse, well, actually, we're already there at verse 15. It says, after these days, we got ready and we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea also came along with us, taking us, uh, what a name. You got to learn to pronounce that. Manasin. It's like Mason, but they slipped in an N. Of Cyrus, a disciple of long standing with whom we were to lodge. After we arrived in Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. And the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. Skip down to verse 26. And I'm sorry, I wish we could read all of it, but I know if I read all of it, you're going to fall asleep, and it's hard to get all of it. Verse 26, then Paul took them in, and the next day, purifying himself along with them, went into the temple giving notice of the completion of the days of purification until the sacrifice was offered for each one of them. And you're like, whoa, what's weird? I haven't read the book of purification. What's happening? Paul is just going above and beyond reproach, okay? This was a Jewish thing. The whole cleansing and the purification in the temple, all right? He didn't have to do these things, but in order to be above reproach and not cause a stumbling block to them, he submitted to the rituals and the regulations that they had in place, all right? Verse 27, when the seven days were almost over, the Jews from Asia, upon seeing him in the temple, began to stir up all the crowd and lay hands on him. So the people that knew what Paul was preaching in Asia were here as well, and they had beef with Paul. And so they stirred the crowds up, they grab him, and they say, men of Israel, come to our aid. This is the man who preaches to all men everywhere against our people and the law in this place. What they're basically saying is, this is the man who's teaching people how to get to heaven. And they don't like it. They don't like it. He goes, they go on to say, and he has even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Everything that Paul did was for God. 
And God chose him in Acts 15 to be a special instrument that would bring the good news to the Gentiles so that they would completely and utterly understand Jew don't matter. Gentile don't matter. It's your repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But his own people, the Jews, hated Paul and they viewed him as a traitor. They viewed him as a traitor because of it. So what are they going to do from here? The whole city in verse 30 is provoked and the people rushed together and they took hold of Paul and they dragged him out of the temple and all of those things and they hand him over to the Romans. That's where he is now, okay? He's been arrested. He is now writing the book of Ephesians to these people. So when he says that he is a prisoner of Christ, it's not just figurative, right? It's literal. But at the same time, we all can kind of associate with that idea of being a prisoner for Christ. We are subject, think of how a prisoner, what, he, what, what does a prisoner do? Whatever the people in charge want him to do. Go to bed. They got to go to bed. You can go to the courtyard. Go to the courtyard. You can eat now. You can't eat. Oh, you're on this dude. They're, they're subject to whoever's over them. Well, we too, Christians, are prisoners of Christ in a different sense where he is our overlord, he is our master, and we are subject to do what he desires for us. When we think of our world, our world is becoming more and more antagonistic to the truth, more and more opposed to Christianity and what Christianity represents. You remember the story of James Coates, right? Remember, he was the pastor in Canada, and Canada passed a lot of uh, very rigid COVID restrictions. And basically, they were making it impossible for churches to gather together to worship and to study God's word. And James Coates said, we're going to get together and we're going to worship God. And he was warned. And they said, we're going to arrest you. And he said, we're a church, man. A church meets. We, we have looked at the risk and everything that's going on. We are going to gather together. And so since he got his church together, what did they do to him? They arrested him. And they threw him in prison. And you're like, yeah, but that's Canada. Well, we're not far off from those things here. And so I want to take a moment when it comes for the sake of the gospel. Because when he says for the sake of the Gentiles, remember, it's to preach the good news to them to show them that they're included in things, to advance the kingdom, what, are, what would you, all right, what would you be willing to give up or sacrifice? Would you be willing to go to prison for Jesus? And we look at you, and, and you're young, and you have your whole life in front of you, and all of these wonderful things, and oh, the places you will go. What if, in obedience to God, his kingdom would be furthered if you would be willing to go to prison. I'm not saying that he's offering that deal on the table right now. But what I'm saying is, would you do it or would you walk away? Oh, that, that, that's too steep. I, I wouldn't do that. I'm, I'm, mm, mm -mm, right? Because what you find right now, it is cool and socially acceptable for you to call yourself a Christian. To go to youth group on a Wednesday night, to go to youth on a Sunday morning, it's culturally normal for you. But when you get to college, 
You have more freedom. You have more choices. You have more opposition. And some people say, look, I'd rather go party. I'd rather go do these other things. I don't want to put up with the harassment and the, the persecution that a Christian's going to face. I don't want to put up with the, the rigid schedule of waking up on Sunday morning. Are you truly in the Lord Jesus Christ? And if you're a true believer, you're willing to say, Jesus, sign me up for whatever. Because I know you have your plans, right? Where you're going to have 2.5 kids. You're going to have a white picket fence. You're going to live in the suburbs or whatever it is. What if God has a different plan for you? What if God desires for you to go overseas and be a missionary? What if God desires you to be persecuted? And you know, Where are you at with that? Where are you at with it? Let's look at the second part. And I know we spent a lot, a lot of time on he is a prisoner of Christ. Okay, B in our outline. He is a steward of God. He is a steward of God. Verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, if indeed you have heard. Now, this is the verb here. This is the important thing that we're looking at. This is the action. You have heard, right? If indeed you have heard of what? Of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. We don't really use the word steward, and most of the time I illustrate this. We go to Lord of the Rings, the steward of Gondor, and all that cool stuff. All right, a steward is, um, has the responsibility of management. And I want you to go to actually to, to Genesis 39. A little bit more biblical example than the steward of Gondor, right? Genesis 39. And while you're going there, uh, this is about who? Who is a steward? Joseph. All right, there we go. We just read this in our reading plan recently. Joseph, uh, Joseph is a perfect illustration of what I'm talking about here, that sacrifice and things along those lines. Remember, he was taken and he was sold into slavery by his brothers. And while he was transferred to Egypt, he was sold to a man named Potiphar. And he didn't throw a pity party and woe is me. And blah, blah, blah. He simply served the Lord Jesus Christ. And in that, he is going to rise to the role of steward in the house of Potiphar. And chapter 39, now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. He, he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now as his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he had, uh, did to prosper in his hand, so Joseph found favor in his sight and became his personal servant. And he made him overseer of his house. And all that he owned, he put in his charge. It came about that from time to time, he made him overseer in his house. And over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. Thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house and in the field. So he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he did not concern himself with anything except the food which he ate. That's pretty amazing, right? And Joseph is a great correlation to Paul, all right? He is not simply a prisoner. He is a slave, all right? He is a slave in the house of Potiphar. God's eternal plan 
had Paul become a prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ for the advancement of the gospel and for God's glory. God's eternal plan had Joseph sold into slavery so that he could rise to power in Egypt and save everybody from the famine and bring glory to God. And Joseph was a willing participant in the eternal plan of God. What did he do? He put off sin. He put on righteousness. He simply trusted God where he was at, and he did what God wanted. And God raised him and elevated him. And now we know the next story, right? We know the next part. Potiphar's wife looks at Joseph. Potiphar's not around. Sleep with me. Joseph, being a righteous man, ran from that. And what did he get for his troubles? She falsely accused him, and he got thrown into prison. And on and on and on, Joseph is willing to follow the one true God, and God elevates him, but he also, through Joseph, is elevating his own glory and furthering his plan. We should be as equally excited to be a part of God's plan in whatever role we can play. All right? When it comes to being a steward, is there something that your parents trust you with? Is there a role or a responsibility that you have at home? You're like, yes, but I don't want to say. I won't tell you which one of my friends, but his dad entrusted to him the mowing of the yard when he was in high school. But that didn't last very long because he didn't mow it just like his dad did, so he got fired. But there's things, right, that your parents, you're responsible for. You're responsible for taking out the trash or, or unloading the dishes or cleaning things. That's your role. You're the one who's supposed to walk the dog or clean up after the dog or whatever it might be, okay? There's roles that you have. What is Paul a steward of? Of God's grace, okay? We know God's unmerited favor. So God entrusted to Paul his grace, his special message of revelation so that he would then go out and give it to others. So why was he a steward? He says, which was given to me for you. God said, Paul, you are a chosen instrument of mine for the Gentiles. And imagine if Paul had been like, eh, I don't like the Gentiles. I'm too lazy. That doesn't really fit with my schedule. You know what? I had some other career goals, God. That's just not going to kind of work out. You can compare it to Jonah, right? Jonah was entrusted with a message to go to Nineveh and to preach uh, repentance. And Jonah said, oh, I don't like them. I don't, want, I don't want to do that. And he walked away. Well, where'd that get him? He got swallowed by a big old fish and all of that gross stuff, okay? Paul is a steward for them. Did he fulfill his stewardship? Yes. How do we know that? Verse 2, if indeed you have heard. Has the church at Ephesus heard the good news of the gospel? Yes. Have they heard about the word of God? Yes. Have they been instructed on the eternal plan of God? Yes, yes, yes. Paul is a good steward. What has God, thinking caps, what has God entrusted to you? Need some answers here. Need you to wake up, maybe poke some people around you. What has God entrusted to you? Will? Yeah. He's entrusted with you the good news of the gospel 
so that you what? Go into the world and you spread that truth. Are you going to take that news and benefit from all the awesomeness of being saved and not tell anyone else? He gives you the gospel so that you would take that gospel and share it with other people. What about 1 Peter 4.10? Anyone familiar with 1 Peter 4.10? You ever heard of that verse? Bible quizzing's coming up. Hopefully you have. You got it? No? Huh? Somewhere your small group leaders are crying. I want you to flip to 1 Peter 4.10. Oh, you got it, Mr. Sears? Yeah. Yeah, what special gift? If you're a Christian, well done. Who, who claimed him? Who, who signed the Sears back up when they moved in? Good choice, all right? God's giving you the Holy Spirit. And with the Holy Spirit, there is a giftedness for every Christian. It could be the gift of teaching. It could be the gift of helps. It could be the gift of mercy. It could be the gift of giving. It, it, on and on and on. It could be the gift of administration. It could be the gift of leadership, but you have a gift or you have a combination of several gifts that God gave to you as his steward so that you would employ it in serving one another. What in the world are you doing? Are, are you a Christian? Then you have been gifted by God himself, entrusted as a steward of that gift to serve other people. You can serve here in a ministry team. You can serve in Awana Wednesday night. You can sign up to serve at that countryside fair and, and encourage and love and help and all sorts of stuff. We serve in everyday life, but we also have official ministries that we're a part of. And that comes with sacrificing things. You, you gotta limit that schedule and work through those things. But guys, you need to do that. In Luke 12, we don't have time to read all of it, but Jesus teaches a parable of a steward where he's been entrusted with something. And in Luke 12, 41, Peter said, Lord, are you addressing this parable to us or to everyone as well? Is this, is this one of those parables that's about us? Jesus said, who then is the faithful and sensible steward whom his master will put in charge of his servants? to give them their rations at the proper time. Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all his possessions. If your school teacher is over you and gives you an assignment to do and they're sitting right next to you, what do you do? Oh, you do the assignment. When they walk out of the classroom, maybe, maybe not. Guys, don't forget that God is everywhere and God sees everything you do. And what he's done is he said, hey, look, here's a gift. And I want you to take that gifting. And I want you to further my gospel. And I want you to build up the body of Christ. And I'm watching you every single moment of the day. And some of you say, oh, I love Jesus. But you don't want to serve him. If you don't want to serve him, then you don't love him. You don't love him. If you're looking for opportunities, talk to your small group leader on how to use your giftedness to the Lord. And you might say, well, I don't, I don't know what my gifted is. Well, go online. You can take a gifted test. No, don't do that. 
You know how you find out what your giftedness is? You serve. And then there's some things you go, oh, I'm kind of good at that. And there's other things you go, I'm really bad at that. Okay, well, you're not gifted in the bad thing. I want to be on the music team. I want to sing. That's my giftedness. And then we hear you sing and we're like, oh, maybe you're an usher. <laughs> serve. And that's how you'll know. The last one, and, and what, I, what I've done is I've kind of taken this whole passage and uh, I do need to finish. We'll come back and we'll finish this passage, Lord willing, on Sunday. But I do want to give you C. He is a conduit of the Spirit. He is a conduit of the Spirit. He writes this, For, I, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles... If indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation there was made known to me the mystery, as I wrote before in brief. The mystery. Well, go back to Ephesians 1. Look at Ephesians 1 verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished on us in all wisdom and insight. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him. What's he meaning here, okay? We know from the beginning, Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, right? Genesis 3, there's a promised one that is going to come and rescue them, all right? But did God tell us when he was coming? Did he tell us what his name was? Did he tell us what he looked like? No. So over time, more and more is revealed about this mystery. And then in Jesus, we have the full revealing. But there were some questions that they had when Jesus ascended. How do the, how do the Gentiles play in? When is Jesus coming back? So Paul is further taking this information from the Holy Spirit. And a conduit is something that is a transmission of information. The Holy Spirit is revealing more, and we know it because we have the full canon of Scripture now, and he is then relaying it to them. Relaying it to them. We'll, we'll touch base about this next Sunday. But my second main outline point, and we're going to close with this, why is Paul telling them this? Number one, who is Paul? In verses 1 through 3, he is a prisoner of Christ. He is a steward of God. He is a conduit of the Spirit. And what I'm saying is, you are the same thing in a different way. But number two, why is Paul telling them this? Why did he stop at this part in the book and rehash this information? Verse 4, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. Look, I'm writing you. I know you're struggling. I know that there's opposition from without. I know there's opposition from within. And what I'm telling you is, you are in Christ, which is a, a privileged position. And as being in Christ, you're a part of God's eternal plan, which he told me all about. And I told you all about it. And I'm going to tell you about it again. And it should make the church want to run through a brick wall for Jesus. He says, which in other generations, it was not made known to the sons of men. And it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets in the spirit. 
Sometimes we look back and think, man, if we were only there with Jesus to see him live, that would be awesome, and it would. If we were only there with Moses when the, the plagues came in and when the seas parted, wow! If we were only there with Elijah and Elisha and saw all those miracles, we are so privileged to have the full plan. We have the whole playbook right here for us to read and for us to share. And I want you to consider from this lesson, who are you? If you're not in Christ, you need to repent and believe in the Lord and Savior. If you are in Christ, you need to buck up and you need to advance his gospel and grow and develop other believers. Let's pray. Lord God, we love you so much. We thank you for the truth that your word contains. We do ask, Lord, that you would give us the ability to, to comprehend your truth. And as we comprehend your truth, we live your truth, and then we go teach others about it. We love you, Lord. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for this time. We thank you for your eternal plan. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.